Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hi everyone, I'm Deb Flaschenberg. Welcome to Yoga Birth Babies, a podcast produced by Prenatal Yoga Center. We will be diving into everything prenatal yoga, birth, and baby related, hoping to inspire, educate, and empower you through your journey into motherhood. Thank you for listening. Hi, I'm Deb Flaschenberg, and I'm your host of Yoga Birth Babies. And today we're going to talk all about newborn procedures. What happens when that baby comes out? And do we want skin to skin? What do we do about the eye drops and the vitamin K and the PKU shot? And when to bathe your baby, when to feed your baby? So much to consider. So to have this conversation, I welcome back Dr. Tracy Agnesis. She's done another podcast with us and it was fantastic. It was really fun. So I'll make sure I link to that in the show notes. But let me tell you a little bit about Tracy. So Dr. Agnesi received her undergraduate degree from the University of Delaware. She graduated from SUNY Downstate Medical School and completed her pediatric residency at NYU. As a pediatrician and mom, Dr. Agnesi knows how difficult it is to have and care for a newborn baby. And she also knows that new parents often feel neglected taking care of themselves and wants to help change that. Dr. Agnesi provides online educational resources for new parents to simplify newborn baby care and help decrease the overwhelm, anxiety, and mom guilt that so many have, and it's so common, after having a baby. So it's a really fun conversation full of so much information, helping you weigh out the risks versus the benefits so that you can make informed choices about what's right for you and your baby. Now, before we get to that conversation, I want to remind you to head to our website, prenatalyogacenter.com, and to grab the free downloadable, Five Simple Solutions to the Most Common Pregnancy Pains. Now, I know it says pregnancy, but I want to invite you that you can use that for postpartum because postpartum, you're also going to have likely upper back or lower back pain or hip pain. And I want to make sure that you have some quick solutions to make you feel better. I also want to share, because people have been asking, now that things are reopening in the studio, we've been open, I think, for I know 10 months, but we're going to continue our online classes because it is amazing. When I sat down and looked at the numbers, we have now reached, we have actually more 
community members from outside New York then within New York. So I want to keep that going. Why shut the door to this brand new community that we can continue to support each other? And the same with our teacher training. We just looked at the numbers because I was thinking we need more New York City teachers. And when we looked at all the teacher trainings that we've had in the last two years, we have only about 25% of those students have been in New York and the rest have been outside, even outside of the U.S. It's amazing how this new online platform has allowed us to grow our teaching community and our perinatal community. So I just want to thank you for continuing to show up online. And that leads me to our yoga teacher training. So we are going to a method that we will do two in-person trainings a year and two online trainings a year. And I strategically have the online trainings when it is often bad weather here in the Northeast. So we will do in-studio for September and October. For November and December, it will be online. For January and February, it will be online. And then in March, April, it will be in person. And then this summer, we're doing a postnatal teacher training online. So lots of good learning for those that want to dive into this material. All right, I think that's it. So let's take a quick break. And when we come back, please enjoy my conversation with Dr. Nisi. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, prohibited by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Tracy, I'm so excited to speak to you again. Welcome back. Thanks. I'm so happy to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah. As soon as I thought, all right, I want to talk about newborn procedures. Actually, my student said, Deb, do something about newborn procedures. I'm like, oh, I know who to call. So, because <laughs> we had such a good time on our last, our last podcast. I'll make sure I link to that in the show notes, but I'm sure you, I gave these questions to you before, so I'm sure you've got a ton to go off of. And so let's just dive in. All right. So in case anybody didn't hear your last podcast, which was wonderful, why don't you tell everyone a little bit about yourself and then how you decided to focus on pediatrics as well as become an IBCLC? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. So I am Tracy Agnesi. I'm a pediatrician in Manhattan on the Upper West Side, and I've been practicing pediatrics for over 10 years now. Um, the thought of how I, I went into pediatrics is something, it's funny, I actually don't even really remember it so much anymore. It, as a kid, I always wanted to be a pediatrician, and I remembered actually buying stuffed animals at garage sales with my mom saying, I'm going to put this in my office one day. <laughs> um, so I always wanted to do it, but then when I was going through rotations, I actually really liked OBGYN, considered that for a while, but quickly realized that I didn't want to be a surgeon. And as soon as the baby came out, I was uh, really interested in what was going on with the baby and not as much as with the operating kind of procedural stuff. So I don't know. I just, I just love pediatrics. Um, and I got into lactation because I had thought about it, you know, just because the new mom comes here with the baby so often in those first few weeks of life, especially, but also the first month or two. And they're not really seeing anyone for themselves until about six weeks. And so they just have a lot of questions about lactation because feeding a baby is really um, the biggest thing on their mind in the beginning. And so I thought about, you know, we don't get much education in that in pediatrics. And so I wanted to get more for myself. Um, and then when COVID hit, um, I found really a need because 
there was nobody was really doing in-home um, PD, you know, lactation consultants. So I just started doing it in my office, trying to help them out um, because me helping them was better than no one. And then I got my um, IBCLC. I love that you offer that. I think it is so important. And I want to highlight that it's so true that a lot of pediatricians, even OBGYNs or midwives, they don't have a ton of lactation experience and they don't have then the skills to support their, their clients. So I think it's such an amazing skill and advanced degree or, or certification that you that you have to help your clients. I think it's just wonderful. So those on the Upper West Side, go to Tracy. All right. <laughs> All right. I'm so, here. So let's dive into newborn procedures. All right. I've got, I know there are a lot of them, so <laughs> we'll try to be concise with them. Can you talk a little bit about the eye ointment that babies get? Why sure. they get it? when it needs to happen, how much do they need, what happens if they don't have it, there you go. <laughs> sure. Yeah, there we go. Okay. So the eye ointment, um, it's uh, a prophylaxis, which is a term we used to say we're preventing something. Um, in the United States, it is mandatory for all newborns. Um, and we give it because it prevents gonorrhea infection in the eye of a baby. Um, so it is, although that is a very rare infection, the eye is the most frequent site of infection in newborns and it can cause really serious disease, including blindness. Um, and the eye prophylaxis is preventing that is an eye ointment. It's called erythromycin eye ointment. So it's an antibacterial eye ointment. It's very easy to administer. You just put it across the baby's eyes. Um, it's, you know, not difficult. It doesn't really have any major side effects um, and it can prevent blindness. So that's really the reason. And the um, side effects could be a little irritation of the eye. If that happens, it usually resolves within a day or two anyway. Some people cite blurry vision as a side effect that they're opposed to, but in newborns, to have blurry vision anyway. They don't really see too far. Things are blurry. So, you know, to prevent blindness, I, I, I don't really think that that's, um, something that, um, should be that significant. And, um, it should be applied as soon as possible within two hours after birth to prevent that. So that's why we do it. Pretty do- simple. If it's for gonorrhea, would somebody yeah. know if they had that? Oh, good question. Right. So it is totally possible, um, and this is a big part of it, that somebody would have gonorrhea and be asymptomatic, which means you have no symptoms. So um, that is the reason. So you can have it. You can, you know, it can be, it's transmitted very easily, and um, you might not know you have it, you know. And even if you got tested during pregnancy, you know, it is possible that you would pick it up after testing and you have it and not know. So... Trying to think of some students that I know, like, I really don't want much to disturb that time right after baby. If somebody really felt strongly, could they be tested at like 37, 38, 39 weeks for gonorrhea and that be pretty accurate or am I just being too picky? I don't know. I think, I think being too picky for something that's really not a big deal. It's just a little like, you know, ointment on the eye. It takes a second to do, you know, and so, um, you, you never, if you missed, you know, the infection somehow, if it didn't, if it wasn't there in the test, but that, or they acquired it after, or there's, there's a lot of reasons that, um, I just, I don't know. I don't think it's a, big deal at all and it can prevent blindness. 
No, I definitely want to pursue yeah. blindness. So I guess I'm just trying to think of some students who are like, I want nothing. And so, yeah, no, I heard. I remember um, my midwife, she's like, bloop, bloop. And then she, she really put barely any in there. Um, I think she's, I think by, if I'm correct, New York state law, you have to do you it. You have to. Yeah. I think it's the United States. I think you have to do it. Yeah. Oh, all of us. Okay. Curious. All right. So let's also talk about the vitamin K shot. Kind of same thing. Are there alternatives? Why do they get it? When do they get it? Can they sure, opt yeah. out of it? Sure. So, okay. So vitamin K. So what is vitamin K? So it's, um, uh, it's a vitamin that helps your blood clot. The K actually, um, I just found this out is, uh, a Danish word for coagulation. That's where it comes from. So it helps with coagulation. And, um, so it helps your blood clot. Vitamin K deficient bleeding. We call it VKDB. That's, um, a disease in babies. It used to be called hemorrhagic disease of the newborn. Hemorrhagic meaning bleeding out. Um, so that's a condition in newborn babies where they can bleed uncontrollably because they don't have enough vitamin K, vitamin K in their blood. Um, and that's what we're preventing. And it's not just easy bruising or bleeding, but this vitamin K deficient bleeding can be a very serious condition where the baby can be bleeding internally, like inside their body and the bleeding, you know, might not be noticed right away. They can bleed into their belly, into their intestines, into their brains, which can then cause brain damage and even death. Um, so that's why we, yeah, that's the disease that we're trying to prevent. There is, there's kind, there's three different types of VKDB. Um, there's early, classical, and late. I'll just kind of briefly summarize them because it, it, it helps to understand as we're talking about giving it and when and the kinds. So the early type can, it occurs within the first day after birth. This is usually, actually, I think almost always in babies who, whose moms had a certain medications during pregnancy that makes them not um, be able to, uh, it interferes with vitamin K. These are some anti-convulsants, so anti-seizure medicines, certain antibiotics for different things. So this is something that usually the, the um, pregnant mom would be aware of, you know, the doctors probably talk to her about this is something that we're, um, you know, looking out for and they would be aware of that. But then there's um, the classical and then there's the late vitamin K deficiency disease as well. The classical is about the first week of life where the baby bleeds from the umbilical cord usually. And then the late can take place in the first six months of life or even a little later. Um, and this is often seen in exclusively breastfeeding babies because breast milk actually has very low vitamin K. Um, formula is supplemented with it, so you don't often see it in that. And this one is rare, but uh, the uh, with a high frequency of uh, intracranial, so in the, in the brain bleed, um, and um, can be very serious. So those are the, the three different types. Um, why do newborns not have enough or really a lot of vitamin K at all when they're born? It's a few reasons. They're born with about 20%, I think, of the adult values um, for a few reasons. One is they just have, they have immature livers um, and that helps to, you know, um, is synthesize and make it. So they, their immature livers is a reason. And a second reason is that it doesn't transfer well from the placenta. So even if mom has adequate vitamin K, it doesn't transfer into the, uh, from the, over the placenta into the baby very well. Um, and also, I mentioned vitamin K is low in breast milk. And newborn babies have a sterile gut or almost sterile where we get our vitamin K from uh, foods we eat and bacteria in our guts. And babies don't really have that yet. So those are the reasons they are low in vitamin K. Um, 
So if Any someone questions on that, yeah, I feel no, like I've been makes, talking. No, no, that makes sense. Actually, I had not heard. That makes a lot of sense. I had not heard about the one, the intracranial later in that six months. That was actually really something new and interesting. So I know it's given through a shot. If someone mm-hmm. doesn't want that, what are their alternatives? Okay, so yeah, <laughs> so there, so in the United States, there actually is no, or by alternatives, you're talking about oral, right? So yes. the, the shot that we give is a shot in the, um, in the muscle, um, of the baby. Um, there is an oral version of vitamin K. Um, it's, there is not, a one that's approved in the United States. Um, but I think in some places, um, uh, in Europe have it. And the problem is that it has been shown, um, several times to just not be as effective as the shot. Um, so it's not, it's not recommended and it's, it's just not absorbed as well, you know, through the stomach and the intestines. Um, and, um, so the shot really is, um, the most effective, um, one, the, um, Australia, actually, there was a recent study, um, that further supported the, um, IM, which is intramuscular, which is shot, you know, version of vitamin K because, um, Australia kind of recently changed their national guidelines from oral to the shot version of vitamin K. Um, and that support that, um, went with a decrease, a significant decrease in bleeding afterwards. So, um, that was just another recent one showing that this the is, shot is better. See, that's what I love. I just love that we can give information and mm-hmm. then parents can then also understand why these things. I think one thing I've seen from some parents are like, why does my baby get a shot? So like right away. And I think yeah. if we can explain, it can then make them feel a little bit better because maybe, you know, sometimes babies cry from the shot. Yeah, and as a brand absolutely. new parent, you're like, oh, you're, my yeah. baby's just so I and like, one thing I want to mention, yeah. actually, with what you said, you were um, not being, you know, um, aware so much of the later um, vitamin K mm-hmm. disease, which can be the brain bleeds. Yes. The problem and why this is so important for people to understand is that in that later presentation, um, they don't have any really signs before they're very sick. So they'll just present with vomiting and seizures when the, there's already been bleeding in the brain. It's not like something that you can, you know, pick up early and, and kind of intervene at that point, that late one, it's, it, it can be, it's very serious, very quick. Um, and so, and that's actually kind of more of the thought I think behind why the shot is better than the oral is that it's absorbed into the muscle and then it kind of like has delayed, um, you know, release later on. Um, so, so some of these oral versions that are given in different countries, um, there's various different, um, timing where they give it, I think, immediately after birth, and then they give it many times within the first few, you know, weeks or months. Um, and then, of course, anytime you are giving something orally, not only is it not as effective, but then you run into, um, you know, administration isn't always exactly as ideal, and then that can further decrease the effectiveness of it, too. Yeah, I think about with my kids and antibiotics, if they have to have for 10 days, we're like by day seven, we're like, wait, did we do it? Did we not? Are we yeah, done? Where are we with totally, this? Totally, <laughs> totally. And then even the vitamin D, like it's hard to sometimes remember if you gave it that day or not. And, you know, um, so yeah, we I would make see it chart. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So it's hard, you know, with a newborn baby at home to remember to well, do that. So I just think it's helpful for people to understand the why so that should they be encountering something that maybe doesn't feel immediately great, they're like, okay, I get why we have to do this. Yeah. 
Yeah. And actually similar with that too. I just, I don't want to go into all these crazy numbers because I think it's, you know, people don't, um, it's hard to hear, but just two quick things is that babies who do not get the vitamin K shot are 81 times more likely to have vitamin um, K deficient um, disease. And then 20% of those babies with it will die. And then the ones who don't die can have brain problem and, you know, damage. So, um, so prevent something very serious and, and the pain, you know, is, is, um, is something that can be mitigated. You know, there are things we can do. Every institution is a little different as far as, you know, if they'll allow you to do the shot while nursing, but if that's available to you, that could be a a great way. If you do choose to nurse, you know, and they let you do it a great way to mitigate the pain in the baby. Um, and so, um, and skin to skin also, you know, is a great way. And I've actually seen babies not even flinch with it because, you know, what it can be, uh, you know, they, they cry sometimes just as much with like a underarm thermometer reading, you know, because everything is like they're, they're hyper aware of everything, but it's not, you know, um, it, it, it's, it, it can be minimal, you know. Well, that makes me think about, I'm kind of jumping ahead on some of the things I was planning to talk about, but I want to jump into the timing. So yeah. you were saying that, you know, you can wait till they're nursing and how long can somebody delay things like the vitamin K shot or the eye ointment if they want to get a little undisturbed bonding time. What is the rule for that? So the vitamin K is supposed to be given within six hours. Um, you know, the sooner the better, but a few hours is, is usually fine. And the eye ointment is supposed to be within two hours. All right. So that gives somebody, so say, cause again, I, I'm only referring to like when, what I saw as a doula, it was pretty often baby came out and they kind of wanted to wrap things up. They're like, okay, let's get the I or let's get the K, let's get yeah. baby's weight. And it, it sometimes felt like, and I'm so, I'm, I don't want to play good cup, bad cup, but like, I kind of had yeah. to jump in and be like, can we have a little time? Because first, like baby came out, we had some nice bonding, cleaning up the birthing parent, getting them all comfortable and then right into it. And it certainly was not two hours. I'd say it was like half an hour. And sometimes yeah. we had to really push for like, can we have an hour? Can we just have a little bit more time? So what would you say to someone that really wants to take at least an hour to how to protect that time. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that the trend now is definitely across, uh, is, is more towards, um, encouraging that immediate skin to skin contact, um, in, you know, the hospitals that I've seen, you know, around here. Um, and I think throughout the country, of course, there's probably a lot of variations, but, um, the, that importance of the immediate skin to skin is very well documented. And I think a lot, most people are starting to understand more and more. So, you know, of course, I have to say, you know, because I'm a doctor, that (laughs) in conditions where the mom and the baby are both medically stable enough to, you know, allow that, where further intermediate, you know, urgent interventions aren't needed, um, then really most newborns should be able to place, be able to be placed skin to skin, you know, immediately um, after a vaginal or a uh, C-section. And during that skin to skin is when that first breastfeeding, if they choose to, you know, should be encouraged. Um, And that can have great benefits to, you know, the baby, um, more stable 
stable vital signs like heart rate and blood pressure, improved blood glucose, which is the blood sugar during the first, you know, few hours and days of life, increased um, breastfeeding duration, even at one to four months postpartum, you know, can support bonding with the parent and the baby. Um, and it just encourages some of the innate breastfeeding behaviors in babies. So, um, so there's a lot of data out there for what you, you know, saying you would like to encourage in your, in your patients, which is that immediate skin to skin. That is so great. So immediate skin to skin, as long as the parent and the baby are stable and fine. And so Mm -hmm. that means someone could push off the newborn procedures for like one or two hours. A few hours. Yeah. I think that's, you know, again, I think that's really the trend is to be more accepted to um, prioritize that and then do the things like that need to be done. Even, you know, weighing the baby and, you know, doing those interventions in a few hours is, is, um, usually pretty fine. Oh, good. I actually want to talk about weighing the baby. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about baby's first weight. We'll be right back. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. All right. So let's talk about baby's first weight. So something that I learned when I, about seven years ago on one of my earlier podcasts was when someone has an epidural, we know that they're, they have to have continuous fluid, IV fluid, because an epidural can make someone's blood pressure drop. Now, when the birthing parents having that fluid, their body's taking it in. But also what I learned is that babies weight can be artificially inflated because of all that fluid. Mm-hmm. And something my own pediatrician I had a conversation about was taking consideration because I know that sometimes babies then have to pee it out. Or not sometimes, they mm-hmm. pee it out. And then there can be that drop in weight. And it's like, oh my God, baby lost too much weight. So when does a baby get its first weight taken? And do you think it's generally taken into consideration how the babe was born if it was with an epidural without because of so, that weight drop. Yeah. So usually the first weight is either immediately or within, you know, first few hours, either um, in the birthing room or maybe in the newborn, you know, uh, afterwards. It's usually pretty, pretty soon. Um, is the, are the fluids taken into account with the weight loss? Honestly, usually not because we're often not seeing all those records of how much fluid was actually given. Mm-hmm. Um but what we do take into account is not just the birth weight. And I guess I'll just back up a minute just to explain to all the listeners what we're talking about is that 
we, all babies, most babies lose weight after birth. Um, we generally accept and allow them to lose up to 10% of their birth weight. Um, we like to see them start gaining the weight usually around days three to five of life, um, which usually coincides with milk coming in if they are breastfeeding. Um, and then we like to see them get back up to their birth weight by about two weeks of age. Um, so, but that 10% isn't the only thing that we look at. We also look at how feeding is going, the number of wet diapers, the stool number and the the consistency of the stools, which is the poops and jaundice, right? So for example, if a baby is over 10% of their weight loss, but is feeding really well and having a lot of wet diapers, meeting the daily wet diaper requirements, is pooping a lot and the poop is getting waterier and yellow and seedy and the baby's not jaundice. And we might elect to carefully monitor for a day or so and see if that baby then, you know, starts to increase weight and not be 10%, you know, um, starts to go in the right direction. But similarly, if the baby hasn't lost quite that 10%, you know, maybe baby lost even only five or six percent, but the baby isn't feeding well, isn't meeting the number of wet diapers um, required per day, is not um, stooling in a little while, or the stool is still really thick and closer to meconium, or the baby's jaundiced, you know, then we might be concerned sooner, even if they haven't gotten to that 10%. So we do talk about that 10% a lot, but it is, it's a little nuanced and it's not, you know, so black and white. And we like to think about all the things. I love that you take so much more into consideration than just the numbers. I think that's really important. But when are doctors seeing this? So in general, someone can be in the hospital for, I don't know, like, it depends on the kind of birth and where. I know like, um, when we had a birth center at Mount Sinai West mm-hmm. <laughs> back in the day, um, uh-huh. I know it makes me sad. It was a different conversation. So sad, I know. Um, they would be out within 24 hours, but then if they're in L and D, maybe a day or two, if they had a cesarean up to three days. So when, if some someone had a hospital birth, when are they seeing the pediatrician to keep all this in sight as well as is it may not be their pediatrician they see once they leave the hospital? Right. Yeah. I mean, and yeah, I used to do, um, nursery, newborn nursery rounds in the hospitals. Um, we used to do it at two hospitals and then with COVID we stopped and we just didn't go back. Um, and again, that's, I, I think that is also the, really the trend across the country is that the, um, outside, you know, private pediatricians, um, are kind of get, leaving that to the, um, hospitalists who are, you know, the newborn hospitalists. So most of the time it's not going to be your pediatrician who's seen the baby in the hospital. And, and that's fine. They're, they're amazing. And that's what they do. They do newborn, you know, exams, um, in the hospital. So, um, now it's usually if it's a vaginal uncomplicated vaginal delivery, you're in the hospital for maybe, you know, a day or two, if it's a C-section, maybe two or three days. Um, and it used to be, you know, two days with the vaginal three with a C-section, but you know, kind of a little shorter now, maybe sometimes with the pandemic. Um, and then you, um, are, we are seeing the babies in our office. It's usually anywhere from one to two or three days after they're discharged. Um, so it might be the next day, especially if there were concerns about feeding or weight or jaundice, um, or it would, it's usually not much later than two or three days after being discharged. That's good. I, I still remember carrying my barely, we lived two blocks from our pediatrician and I just remember being like, the baby is so small to take outside. <laughs> it was just so crazy bringing this teeny, teeny baby into, yeah. the, into the doctor's office. But oh my oh, God. I have so much to say about that. I, I think that we, there's other countries that do such a great job of providing that, you know, dyad care in the home. And I, I wish we can kind of I know. head that way. It's a whole other oh. conversation, but I hear I know. you. <laughs> I hear you. I actually had, um, I had a midwife and she came to see me 
at home and it was pretty amazing. I mean, she was, she checked on the yeah. baby obviously, but yeah. to have somebody come into my home within a few days of, of birthing and then I would check, she'd have me check in with her every single day for, I think it was like three or four weeks, just like a phone call. It's like, how are you? And it, that's so lax it's, in our I know. care. I actually know a, um, a kind of a, a group of pediatricians who, and I think it makes a pediatricians and some OBGYNs with it too, who um, are providing, you know, fourth trimester dyad care in the home through a, usually it's a direct primary care model, you know, where they, where they go and do this. And I, I, I just wish that's something that's accessible to so many more people. Here. I know because <laughs> between leaving the hospital and seeing a care provider six weeks where we know, I know. that is just a time for things to kind of fall apart. All right. Let's pull back to newborn procedures. Yeah, I know we can have another whole discussion on that. <laughs> All right. So delayed cord clamping. Yes. So how long can someone delay cord clamping and why would someone want to wait? Yeah. Yeah. So delayed cord clamping is also kind of more of the normal at most hospitals now where historically doctors used to clamp the umbilical cord immediately after delivery of the baby. Um, and, you know, just a reminder, the umbilical cord is connecting the placenta um, to um, the, you know, to the baby. And immediately after birth, the placenta is still inside the mother. And then that detaches from the uterus and is delivered afterwards. So delayed cord clamping means where you're waiting to clamp the umbilical cord. Um, and therefore, you are allowing extra time for the blood in the umbilical cord um, and the placenta to flow to the baby. Um, actually started about um, about 10 years ago. I think the research really showed that premature babies benefited the most from this additional blood volume from the placenta. So it became common practice with premature babies first. Um, and then the research, you know, came out that full-term babies also really benefit. So the American College of OBGYN, ACOG, and um, the AAP endorses it as well. Um, they recommend delaying the umbilical cord clamping for all healthy terms and, you know, infants and everyone for at least, they say 30 to 60 seconds after birth. Um, and then the World Health Organization says to wait one minute. Um, some other groups say it's okay to wait two minutes or a little longer. Um, but I, I don't know, honestly don't know the data on that. I do know that the, you know, uh, the minute is, 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 is really beneficial. And most of that, um, benefit comes from the minute. I guess I could talk about the benefits, right? So why are we even, yeah. so we're, yeah, so more, you know, more blood means more red blood cells, means more iron, which means less iron deficiency anemia, not only at birth, but actually um, delayed clamping can improve the iron stores for several months in the baby, um, which prevent, which helps prevent this iron deficiency during the whole first year of life. So um, since iron deficiency can be linked to impaired or, you know, brain development, or um, you're basically helping to improve and maximize the infant's cognitive motor to behavioral outcomes by, by doing this. Um, in the premature babies, they saw initially that those babies who had the delayed clamping had increased um, oxygen levels in their blood, increased survival, less, re less need for blood um, transfusions and um, lower rate of some serious complications. So, um, so yeah, I think it's, it's a cool. great trend. And so yeah, like, I know. Me too. Really, what's been interesting is, so I've been doing I've had prenatal yoga center for 20 years, so I've seen different trends come and go. I'm thrilled that delayed cord clamping is now, now has data supporting it. But what I've noticed is we don't, I used to get emails all the time from blood banks be like, oh, we'd like to sponsor and do this. I don't hear from them anymore. So I'm wondering if cord banking is not as popular since data is showing delayed cord clamping is good for the newborn. And mm -hmm. if it's going into the newborn, it's not getting banked. Have you noticed? Yeah. 
noticed that shift? You know, honestly, I, I haven't, um, I'm not, I don't see that as much because I'm not really there, but that definitely is, there's less blood to bank if you are, you know, if you're giving it to the newborn. (laughs) Yeah. But I know I'm, I'm okay with that. I'm always more of a proponent of the blood banking in the, you know, general big central registries. If that's something, you know, that the parent chooses to do because, um, the benefits to the actual baby from cord banking are, very minimal. I mean, I've, and I've talked to a lot of doctors about this because I've been quite curious and, um, there's usually, um, not really much of a reason to do it. Um, so the benefits of actually the baby getting that blood, um, far outweighs, yeah, far (laughs) outweighs this potential that usually for the most part, you're not going to be using that for that same person anyway. It's really more of like maybe, you know, a sibling, if you have a known familial condition where, you know, but again, you know, um, the general bank is, I think, usually what I recommend. But, but the risks to that baby in that moment are are really are. Uh, I mean, the benefits are clear; they're there. Yes, delayed cord clamping. I love there that. is one risk I should sure. mention, yes. though. I guess while we're talking about that, is yes, is less blood to bank. But they're also the biggest risk is, um, as far as my end as as a pediatrician, is the increased incidence of hyperbilirubinemia, which is jaundice, which is when babies are a little bit yellow, um, because jaundice is a break. Uh, jaundice is. A, too much bilirubin in the blood. Bilirubin is a normal byproduct of the breakdown of red blood cells. We all have it, you and I, adults, we all have it, and then our bodies get rid of that bilirubin so it doesn't become too high. Babies don't do a great job of getting rid of it. They also have um, extra um, it being produced in their body as well. So with more blood from the placenta into the baby, that's just more of um, uh blood that can become bilirubin, which, so there is about a 40% increase in newborns needing phototherapy for jaundice with the delayed cord clamping. Um, but that doesn't concern me because phototherapy is the lights and that's a treatment for jaundice. And that is very effective in that, you know, in, in, we intervene with that before there's any damage to the baby. So, um, it's something that, um, I still think is really a benefit to do. Yeah. I think a lot of this is just looking, weighing, outweighing the risk versus benefit and seeing what someone feels most comfortable with. Yeah. Which is like life, right? And we've, yeah. we've learned anything over the last two years too. That's really what life is about, right? Is. Weighing all the risks and benefits. So let's talk about it. If we're still in newborn procedures, when does baby get their first bath. Sure. Yeah. Um, again, I, I think I've seen this even in my practice over the last, you know, 10 years where, um, it's been, uh, it used to be immediate and now it's, um, a little later in most places. Although I, I looked into this and there, cause they actually recently did a nationwide survey of hospitals to see what, what hospitals are doing. And there's a wide variety of approaches. So, so most hospitals, they, they quoted around 60%, 63% delay the, the bath for about six to 24 hours after the delivery. Um, and with the exception of like drying the infant initially, another 15% wait until 24 hours and, um, just 8%, um, do it within six hours after delivery. Um, the eight, the World Health Organization recommends delaying the first bath until 24 hours, um, but at least six hours if a full day isn't possible. Um, so the U.S. hasn't really implemented this recommendation into any standard protocols. That's why we see such a variation, um, I think, nationwide. Um, but yeah. So if someone wants to delay, they have every reason to. If they yeah, don't want to yeah. Out. There's benefits. Yeah. Um, yeah, the you know, that you can kind of rub into. Yes, their skin. yes. 
Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, that vernix, so that's what the baby's covered with, you know, in utero. It's like this waxy white substance coats the baby's skin. And it's really amazing. I mean, it has properties that we don't even probably know all of them yet, but even what we know is amazing. It's a natural moisturizer, has antibacterial and cleansing properties. It can help with wound healing and temperature regulation. Um, so keeping that on is, is really very, very good for the baby. Yay. All right. So we're going to talk about the Apgar. Sure. <laughs> I've had parents be like, my baby's Apgar score is fantastic. I'm like, it's okay. It's, it, you know, it's more, it doesn't mean it's their first test score. So yeah, I know <laughs> it's not going to get them into grad school anywhere. <laughs> it's okay. So what is the Apgar? What is it? Why do parents want to know about it? What does Apgar even stand for? Why should they be concerned? Yeah, sure. Okay. So your APGAR score is, it's just a quick way to assess the health of a newborn baby. Um, it's actually funny because I looked into it and so it was created by a doctor, Virginia APGAR. Her I last know. name Don't is. Don't you find that hilarious? I, I find it, well, yeah. So it I just think like it works. It, like it, it, it is. <laughs> and I don't know how exactly how does it work because it's spelled A-P-G-A-R, right? So we use it as an acronym that stands for A is appearance, P is pulse, G is grimace, A is activity, and R is respiration. And it just, it's just incredible that this woman who created it has a last name that you could do that with. I think it's, I think it's amazing. <laughs> I know. I'm glad it makes you laugh as much as me too, because I think it's amazing. Um, yeah, so each of these five things um, that the APGAR stands for um, measure is scored on a scale of zero to two, with um, two being the best score. Um, so this is measured. We give a baby a score. We add them all up. We measure it at one minute of life and five minutes of life. So, um, and then we get a number, right? So ten. We, there's five things. The highest is two. So the highest APGAR score you can get is ten. Um, it's always a joke actually in, in the hospital was always a joke that the only babies who actually get a 10 are pediatricians babies <laughs> because they, they're worried about it or whatever. But most babies don't get a 10. Seven or above is really considered totally normal. Um, and babies, most babies don't get a 10 because most of the time their hands and feet are a little blue and they have to be warmed up and, and that's fine. So, um, 90% of babies have this normal above seven, um, or higher, you know, APGOR score. Lower scores mean that the baby is more like to require some medical interventions such as stimulation or oxygen or breathing assistance or medications or chest compressions. Um, and so again, I guess I can just say briefly, the A is appearance. So we look at the skin color. Is it pink? Is it blue? Um, does it look, you know, that um, there's a good blood flow to it? P is the pulse, so that's the heart rate of the baby. G stands for grimace, which is a grimace response, which is the reflexes of the baby. A is activity, so like the muscle tone of the baby. Um, R is respiration, so that's the breathing rate and the effort, so... So good. So parents just know it's probably not going to be a 10, 10. It's okay. No, it's not going to be a 10, 10. And really, you know, outside of that immediate newborn period, no one even really, um, cares, cares about <laughs> it. Yeah. No one cares about it. And it can be done. It's by sight. So baby doesn't yes, have yes. to leave to have this done. Absolutely. You know, it's very right there on the parents chest happily snuggled in for some skin to skin, which I get that. I'm so glad that you're such a a supporter of skin to skin. So we kind of touched on this earlier about initial breastfeeding. I have seen some babies like immediately rooting for the nipple. And then I've seen some that seem not to have interest. I've been told by IBCLCs, wait for the baby to have that rooting instead of just shoving a nipple in their mouth. What are your thoughts on 
some yeah. about what to look for and when to start. Yeah. I mean, I think, um, so birth is a stressful event, you know, for the birthing parent and the baby. Um, and as with any stressful event, you, you sometimes you get a little bit of, a, um, uh, energy surge, like, like right afterwards, you know? So, um, and then you get like really tired and pooped out and you just want to rest. And that's kind of what babies do. So I do recommend to try to take advantage immediately after birth, you know, in that first hour or two to try to get the baby skin to skin and try to get that first breastfeeding. If you're, you know, if you choose to do that, um, because then sometimes they just get really sleepy and really tired for a little while. It becomes hard to wake them up. And then if it's hard to wake them up, it becomes hard to get them to latch. And so try to do it, you know, in the first hour or two. That being, and you know, and of course you hear stories and you've, I've seen it where, you know, baby, you know, all goes well and the baby, you know, all of a sudden starts kind of doing that crawl up to the breast and latches on. Um, you know, but I, I hate kind of telling that sometimes because then when it doesn't go so perfectly, then a lot of, um, new parents get so discouraged. But I honestly, I think really more the norm is to have, you know, some difficulty trying to get the baby on for the first time. And, and that's okay. You know, baby and you are both learning how to do it. So, you know, it's just your first of many tries, but there's so much benefit to trying right away. So, so go for it, but not to get discouraged if it doesn't, you know, seem as easy and, you know, um, wonderful the first time that you do it. It's definitely a learned skill. I would say yeah. for most people, for most people, I agree. All right. The, one of the last things I want to wrap up with is the PKU test. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about it. When's it given? Why is it? What is it? <laughs> I sure, just remember absolutely. seeing him like, you're doing what to the heel? How much yeah. blood? Ah. Yes. <laughs> Yes, yes. So the PKU test um, is, it's a newborn screening test. It's a blood test. Um, and there's actually, it's one of the three kind of newborn screening things that are done in the hospitals now. So the PKU is the blood test. And then there's also um, congenital hearing um, loss screening tests and congenital heart disease screening tests. Um, but I'll answer your question about the PKU, which is the blood test, right? So it's, it's every state is different as far as what exactly it tests for. Um, it's, it is required in every state, but there's, um, it varies as far as which specific disorders are screened for from state to state. But in general, it's dozens, um, sometimes 40 or 50 different diseases. You know, usually these diseases are very rare diseases, but they are ones that, um, have little or no symptoms at first, but then become threatening to the life or the long-term health of the baby. And it's usually something that if known about, you can intervene earlier to, um, do something that can be life-saving or, you know, improve the baby's life. So it picks up various different metabolic or genetic or infectious diseases, you know, before their symptoms. Um, What's usually done is the um, nurse will use, um, maybe put a, a warmer on the baby's heel because when the skin is warm, the blood flows much easier. Um, and so they'll do that first. And then once the heel's warmed up, they just do a small poke to the baby's heel. Um, and then they put drops of the blood onto this special paper, which has like circles on it. And they have to get the blood into the circles. It does look crazy when you, when you watch it. And of course the baby's crying because, you know, it is a little poke and it, it does hurt a little bit when it's poked. Um, but then also they, you know, um, they're, you're holding their, their heel and they don't love that. There's a lot of reasons they don't love it, but you know, a few, a few drops of blood, they send it off to the state and you usually get those results back within about two weeks. And then you can pick up something that, you know, you might really need to know about your baby. I think it's really important. And what I didn't know, and thank you for enlightening me, I didn't know that it was different state to state, what they yeah. test for. That's really interesting. It is. Yeah. Yeah. And then you had mentioned two other screenings, the hearing and the heart. Mm-hmm. Can you explain that? 
Yes, of course. So the hearing test, um, there are two different ones that each place, uh, each hospital uses, um, you might use one or the other. Um, but uh, so one of more, a common one is the OAE, we call it. It's basically a soft little earphone that's inserted into your baby's ear canals and the presence or absence of sound waves, you know, generated by the hair cells of the inner ear, um, in response to a sound stimuli, that's what's measured. Um, and so you can, you know, pick up if there's hearing loss. Uh, another test is, is similar. It's called the ABR and the baby wears these small like earphones almost that has electrodes and it's that are placed on the head. Um, the electrodes are just like little stickers. They come off easily. It's it's not painful. It, it's it's pain. They're painlessly placed on the baby's head. And again, we're also measuring some um, some waves with this. So. Um, and you can pick up hearing loss. Now, sometimes the babies um, uh, fail, quote unquote, I hate using the word fail, but they don't pass their, their hearing screen initially. Um, and usually that's most of the time. It's it's fine. It can just be because some of that wonderful vernix or, you know, fluids from labor and delivery are still in the ear um, and interferes with the test. Um, so usually it's just repeated um, in, you know, uh, either at the pediatrician's office or at the hospital um, or somewhere for um, within, you know, know, the first few weeks and, you know, oftentimes the baby then, you know, passes and everything's fine. But if, you know, it is something that, you know, the baby is, um, has uh, difficulty hearing, then it's, it's good to know about sooner than later because then you can, you know, intervene if you choose and, you know, increase maybe the, um, you know, development of the baby, um, earlier. Um, so that's the hearing. And then the second one is the congenital, critical congenital heart disease screen. This is also a very simple painless test. It's, um, it measures the oxygen saturation, um, in the baby. So it's just, you know, if you've ever, you know, they, that little thing that they like put on your finger at the doctor's office, which tells you if you have what your oxygen percentage is, it's a similar kind of thing. So they measure it in the baby's right hand and then usually, um, one of, um, the, uh, the one of the feet, um, and just making sure that the oxygen's getting, um, everywhere equally and um, making sure if it, if it's not, if it's, there's a big disparity, then there's a, there might be a concern for um, a congenital heart disease. Oh, this is such useful information. I love this. All right. All right we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, what is one final piece of advice or tip you would like to offer new and expectant parents? We will be right back. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. All right. What do you want to hit us with? You gave so much great information, but you are also a pediatrician, a parent, and a lactation consultant. So Mm -hmm. what would you like to leave people thinking about? Um, You know, it's funny. I I don't even know what I said last time. I'm curious. I'm going to have to go back and listen. But... (laughs) But I would say I would love to people to just know that you're doing great. Oh, <laughs> that like because that. you know that's the new parents just um, question that so much, and um, it's a learning curve for both you and baby. But you know you're you're enough. You're more than enough. You're doing great, and just you know uh, keep at it, and and you're doing a great job because I don't know you are, and I think most people just you know question that, and and and, and they don't need to. You're doing great. <laughs> oh, I do love that. I love that. It's a great reminder. Because- 
because how many times do new parents, and I know I remember thinking this, I'm like, we just got to keep the baby alive. That's our job, keep the baby alive. And it's overwhelming. It is so overwhelming to have this newborn and, and most people don't have a lot of people around to help. So yes, I love that you're doing great. Yeah, it's difficult. I know. Where can people find your work? Sure. So on social media, on Instagram, I'm a baby doc mama. And I also have a website, tracymd.com, T-R-A-C-E-Y-M-D.com. And for those that are listening, she's on the Upper West Side. And yes, in my private (laughs) practice, yes, in person, in real life, I am on the Upper West Side in New York City, um, general pediatrics practice. Oh, I love this. You had such great information. And our last podcast, I believe it was called, I'm going to totally butcher it, but it's like weird things newborns do. Yes, (laughs) yes, yes. Scary, weird things that they do. Yeah, that freak out parents that are normal. That like when they stop breathing for a moment, you're like, ah. I like that one. So uh, that was a, this one was more like serious about know what they're doing. And that one was like, really? Babies are strange. So I'll yeah. make sure. <laughs> they're like little aliens in the beginning. I'll make sure yes. that we link to that so that people can just keep learning from you. I wanted to thank you. I know I'm taking time out of your, your busy day at your office. So thank you. Thank you for sharing all this great knowledge. This has been an episode of Yoga Birth Babies, produced by Prenatal Yoga Center. You can catch us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Periscope. I'm Deb Flaschenberg. Thanks for listening.